0: Okay. Hopefully, I'll have an answer.
1: Do large inflatable rats have First Amendment rights? <laughs> I'm asking for a friend, actually. <laughs> I, I'm in in all seriousness. Of all, uh, the,
0: question, of all the questions, <laughs> you have started hey. our podcast episodes with. That one actually took me back. Right? I mean. Um, it's not uh, uh, listeners, as some of you have come to figure out. It's not all that often uh, that I'm speechless, okay? But starting a podcast episode with two,
1: do large <laughs> inflatable rats have First Amendment rights? Right. I think it's a, I think it's a serious, legitimate question that should okay. be that that should invite scrutiny. Okay. <laughs> um, I also I have- think it's awesome. Just in case you were wondering. Although they scare me. They scare me because they're quite large, these inflatable scabby rats.
0: Well, and and also, too, um, and I don't know how one judges this, but of, you know, all the animals in the world, um, I don't necessarily equate
1: cuteness,
0: you know, or cuddlesomeness. Oh, don't
1: say it. Don't say it you're gonna you're gonna make angry all of our listeners who love rats (laughs) oh my goodness you know okay but these particular rats you rat loving listeners you these particular rats are not attractive they're in a combative pose they have sort of blood around their teeth they're they're very noticeable and um And Augie will tell you the story of them because he sent it to me. And the thing he sent to me was this picture of this giant rat with a story underneath. And I've had, I won't say nightmares, that's too strong, but the visual stays with you. Let me tell you, I will in fact see if I can put a picture up on the research guide of said particular inflatable scabby rats.
0: Yes. Um, So in all seriousness, um, the the uh, topic we're going to be looking at today uh, concerns uh, a ruling of a federal agency, the National Labor Relations Board, um, uh, from July of this year. Uh, the National Labor Relations Board, uh, the NLRB, um, affirmed the decision of an administrative law judge within that agency that inflatable rats um, and they're actually known as scabby the rat.
1: Yeah, they have this thing has a name.
0: Yeah, this it has a name. (laughs) Stationed at a neutral private sector employers location. Okay, um, uh, did not violate the authorizing legislation of the board. OK.
1: OK, so can we back up and start? Yes. Start at the beginning. OK, what I think of as the beginning. So the National Labor Relations Board. Yes, that's a, a government agency. Yes. Right. How does it come into being?
0: OK, so uh, the board uh, was created in the late 1930s. Uh, this was part of the New Deal. Nia. Um, uh, the The Act, the National Labor Relations Act, um, is also sometimes referred to as the Wagner Act because the prime sponsor of the legislation was New York Senator Robert Wagner. Basically, the board was created as a federal agency to ensure the rights of workers in the United States. Um, and in particular, the right of workers to unionize. This was the federal law where the uh, government actually recognized that workers had a legal right to unionize and that this board would make sure that employers would treat them fairly and allow them to engage in union activities at the work sites of employers across the United States. You had a question.
1: I do have a question. So in the 1930s, what you're getting is people moving away from personal farming, which was a huge amount of American labor. So in the turn of the century, you're getting the Industrial Revolution, where people move into cities, and now they're working in factories. And those conditions were, in some cases, horrific right? Yes. They were dangerous. Yes. They were deadly. Um, and, and so you start to see agitation for, we should have some rights here. We shouldn't just be made to work or not made to work. Cause I guess you could always quit except then how would you pay your bills? But you know, a work week is not a 70 hour in a freezing cold basement somewhere, kind of no light, no whatever. So you're starting to see those kinds of movements. And that's what brings out unions, right? That's what brings in sort of collect the theory of a union is the collective bargaining. We are going to as a group of workers say to our employer, this condition is unacceptable, whatever the condition is, right? Like, yes, and and we want to be able to collectively bargain to have the condition mitigated in some way, either pay us more because it's dangerous or stop doing the thing you're doing because it's going to kill us. So, right, so that's what you're... Yeah. So, then, mean, the, because, so yeah, then the you, government you, says, okay, well, we'll set up some sort of arbitration for this. Is well, that...
0: Well, before the National Labor Relations Act, okay, it was... Uh, a kind of sort of unknown question as to whether or not uh, the federal government, or for that matter, state governments, um, would protect workers' rights to unionize, to bargain collectively. Because at various times, um, at the turn of the 20th century, in the first roughly three decades, or the first two and a half decades of the 20th century, sometimes the government would actually use government agents to stop labor strikes, okay, or efforts to bargain collectively. And and again, listeners, the the theory of unions is that an employer can be successful in negotiating with an individual worker. I mean, because they can basically go ahead and tell an individual worker, if you don't like the conditions, you don't like the pay, you don't like the hours we want you to work? Well, then fine.
1: Don't let leave. the door hit you where hit the good you. Lord split you.
0: That's right. Okay.
1: As they say, occasionally.
0: But if all of the workers—oh
1: well—we're all going to leave. Uh, okay. Okay. Wait. No. 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 No.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> it is. It is the collective, if you will, power and force. You know. You know the the will by numbers. Okay that will force an employer to negotiate in good faith. Right? Okay. So in an attempt to address, okay, these abysmal working conditions in many industrial sites across the United States, okay, the federal government finally with the Wagner Act, the National Labor Relations Act, okay, went ahead and said one, okay, unions, do have a legal right to exist. And we're going to create an agency, okay, that will make sure that these negotiations and these activities that both employers and employees might want to engage in are quote unquote fair. Okay, and this will take us back to one of our favorite phrases in this podcast, okay? Neither party is acting in an arbitrary and capricious manner okay now almost immediately the law and the board were challenged as being unconstitutional
1: well i can't imagine that in a a society based in capitalism that the rights of the workers is going to be high in the priority of business to support
0: like well, that's I mean, just for, not
1: like rich, rich dudes are going to say, no, 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 no. It, yeah. I mean, and in, 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 in also, you know, think about
0: it in terms of capitalism. You know, we have a U.S. Constitution that has, if you will, enshrined as an important civil liberty property. Right. OK. And in in purely capitalist terms, OK, workers are capital, right? They're assets.
1: They're an asset. Right.
0: Okay. They are the property of the employer who has hired them as an agent. Okay. And, and I, and I know that sounds rather cold and impersonal.
1: No, but businesses, when they want to say good things to the employees, they'll say, you're our best asset. Yes. And if you pull that sentence apart, you're like, wait, you think I'm an asset? Like you think I'm, a thing you own. I don't yes. feel all that great about that. We're great that's about not it. what, that's not what happens. What people do is clap and say, yay, they love us. Cause they say we're great assets. And I'm like, mm, but if you think about the definition of that, what they're saying is that you're great chattel property, but anyway. Okay. Separate issue. Well, and we that is a separate issue. An but, yeah. Cause
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, the, you know, the, the, you know, the downside is the other character characterization you're not an asset, okay, but you are a negative cost to our bottom line.
1: You're a liability.
0: Yeah, you, you never want to hear that you are a liability or you're a negative cost on our bottom line, okay? When you fall into that category, you should probably go ahead um, and update your resume, right? Yeah.
1: yeah, but when they're talking about you as an asset, they're trying to sell it to you as a good thing good thing right um and you know so, but this all comes back to your beloved favorite part of the constitution the commerce clause. The commerce Clause. <laughs> sure okay everything in augie's world for listeners who have joining us for their first episode let me warn you that every single thing that augie ever thinks feels exists <laughs> in his world he can draw a line back to the const to the to the commerce clause in the constitution
0: yes um, uh, the the Supreme Court case that I'm talking about um, uh, was decided in 1937. Uh, oh, the one that
1: upheld the
0: the constitutionality. The Labor Board yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, the Supreme Court held in the case of the National Labor Relations Board versus Jones and Laughlin Steel uh, Corporation um, that Congress had the constitutional authority to um, Passed the law, uh, giving unions the right to organize, okay, to negotiate collectively with employers, because um, labor conditions, labor relations affect, as as Nia just pointed out, interstate commerce, interstate commerce, okay,
1: okay, so so, so act then, gets act gets created steel companies like, nah, 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 nah. This is not constitutional. goes to the Supreme and the Supreme say, turns out it is constitutional because y'all are selling stuff. If you were just a charity, it wouldn't be constitutional. Sorry, you want to make money, that's commerce, go away. So- And
0: and by the way, Nia, and and this is a slight digression, uh, um, an historical aside, if you will, this is the case, okay? that many constitutional law scholars point to as the Supreme Court um, changing its mind about the constitutionality of many New Deal programs. Because it was in this case that Justice Owen Roberts voted with the majority um, and basically continued to do so for the rest of his time on the court upholding the federal government's regulations of national economic conditions. Okay. Okay. This is the, this is the case. Because before, that hadn't
1: there been some contention between Roosevelt and the Supremes about yeah, a narrow the constitutionality of, yeah. of the New Deal and yeah, the various um, programs within the New Deal and New the all that deal, stuff? That's
0: right. Um, prior to this case, um, a narrow majority of the Supreme Court, and Justice Owen Roberts, would occasionally vote with four other justices and declare that New Deal programs um, exceeded Congress's Commerce Clause authority. Okay, but this this is the case of the quote unquote, you know, uh, the switch in time that saved nine. Because Ah. Roberts, you know, switched, if you will, his vote, his thinking on the constitutionality of the New Deal, and it basically undercut FDR's court packing plan. Okay, because you can't go ahead and claim that the Supreme Court is... um, um, uh,
1: Biased against you if they... If they, they start your, up holding,
0: yep. yeah, if they start upholding the programs that you are advocating for, right? Okay. Right.
1: Quit giving no. me what I want because you're giving me what I want and I want to pack the court. No, that's not how no. this is going to work.
0: Yeah, right. Okay. You know, any desire you might have to get, you know, rid of old uh, just uh, federal judges uh, who have antiquated notions about the nation's economy and the U.S. Constitution. well you know, they seem to be coming along, right? You know, they've kind of sort of, you know, adjusted their thinking.
1: But anyways,
0: so-, so I want to get
1: to- Oh, sorry. Okay,
0: so that's the foundation of the National Labor Relations Board, right? And
1: by the way, those decisions can be found, um, many of them online, I'll put a link to them. But the older decisions from the 30s, 40s, 50s are in print. In the government documents system, um, yes. they may not be your local library, but they can be gotten for you if you're interested in seeing. And and the the labor board settles all kinds of disputes, right? It's not just uh, Scabby the Rat, which you're going to talk to us about in a few minutes, but they they settle all a, a lot of disputes about dangerous conditions, about what constitutes that in a in a particular situation, right, or whether an employer has, has been disregarding people's safety and all that. They, they are part of that system that makes those decisions.
0: Yeah, so the overall purpose of this particular podcast episode, listeners, is that Nia wanted, Nia and I wanted to go ahead and explore the power and authority of a federal agency the National Labor Relations Board, that many Americans probably don't know exist, okay? But their rulings, okay, control so much of the interaction between workers and employers, okay? You know, many of us have a tendency to think, well, until a case gets to the Supreme Court, nothing that the government does is final right but that's not the case and the national labor relations board okay is a really good example of how so much of what bureaucratic agencies do can have a huge impact on you know you know things like worker relationships with employers in the case that we're talking about here Uh, the National Labor Relations Board decision in the Scabby the Rat case. Actually, the official name of the case, okay? Um, The official name, and it's long-winded, okay? Um, International Union of Operating Engineers, Local Union Number 150. (laughs) In cooperation with the International Union, of operating engineers AFL-CIO, and and here's the opposing party, Lippert Components Incorporated. <laughs> we will give you a link, okay, to the uh, PDF decision handed down by the National Labor Relations Board. So I'm going to briefly discuss the case facts, Mia, and then we're going to talk about Scabby the Rat, okay? Okay. So. Lipper Components supplies component parts to the recreational vehicle industry. And for our listeners who don't know, there is an entire industry that builds RVs, recreational vehicles. Oh, right? heck
1: yeah. When I retire, man, I'm going to buy one and drive all over the country and go to all the national parks.
0: I have a couple the earlier
1: episode of National Park Visits.
0: Yes. I have a couple family members, Nia, that own RVs, okay? Uh, before the pandemic, um, uh, every summer, they would take you know, their vacation, okay, from work, and they would spend two to three weeks just driving their RVs, okay, to various parks, as Nia just mentioned, see our previous episode about national parks. Of course, my favorite story about RVs is that we actually have a U.S. Supreme Court justice.
1: who likes Yes, we do. You, RVing, you might, it's right. You might see yes. Justice Thomas parked next to you in the national park. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, hooked up to the water line and sitting yes. out having a beer. Actually, yes. I don't know if he drinks beer or not, but.
0: Clarence Thomas and his wife, Jenny, okay, uh, about a decade ago, Went and bought a high end RV. Okay.
1: And that is the other thing. Those RVs can come from, can come in the form of, oh, I tricked out my van to be an RV. That's van life for people who want to go look on YouTube. That's the cheapest level of that. But that's not the equipment we're talking about. We're talking about that high end. $200,000, $400,000 Two hundred, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollar RV that is basically your house on wheels. It does the house on wheels everything. Here's my some- movie screen where I can watch the latest releases of whatever. Like, yeah, it's amazing what they can do with an RV.
0: Listeners, some of these RVs are probably better equipped.
1: Oh, than my apartment than- for sure. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> for sure. And some okay. of them are bigger. Some of them yeah. are bigger than my apartment. Like some of them were the size of a semi. But anyway, so, okay. so, they, so Lipper,
0: Lipper they components. these
1: components. Okay.
0: Yes, okay. They supply component parts to the RV uh, uh, industry. Right. They rented equipment from a firm that was involved in a labor dispute with the International Union of Operating Engineers. Okay.
1: So, so Lippert is just renting equipment from Bob's company. Bob's company is the one that's in the dispute with its with its labor force.
0: Yes, okay. In,
1: in this case, Bob's company is the- is the, industries. the other firm. Okay, yeah, Thor. Thor Industries. Thor, even better than Bob. That's what I'm gonna okay. use from now on. Okay. Yes,
0: so in the language of the National Labor Relations Board, Lippert Components is a neutral
1: party. Right, because they're not involved in that. They don't have a problem with their employees. They don't have a problem with Thor's employees because they're not part of that. They're just renting the equipment. Like when you go and you rent a vacuum, like a floor cleaner from Kroger, if Kroger's having a dispute with with its employees, that's got nothing to do with you. You're yeah. just here to get the floor cleaner. That's all you're here to do.
0: Like, Yeah, and the floor cleaning company would be the neutral party. Right. But, but one of the tactics that unions will use to put pressure on the employer that they do have a dispute with is to petition, okay, lobby, okay. Um, Yell at yell at, pass out <laughs> handbills and flyers to companies that do business with the employer that the union has a dispute. And that's what happened here.
1: So Lippert is the one who ends up with the rat on their front lawn.
0: And that's where we get to scabby the rat. The union in this case, okay, employed various inflatable scabby the rats outside of the Lippert company's exhibit at a trade show to bring attention to the fact that some of the companies doing business with the Thor industry, okay, need to put pressure on the Thor industry to actually negotiate in good faith with the union. Lippert components was just like, hey, wait a minute here.
1: We didn't do anything. We're not responsible for Thor's difficulties with its employees. We are not the world's peacekeeper, nor are we the world's union-solving issue. Like, this is not okay.
0: Yes. Okay.
1: Oh, side note to the side note. Scabs are people who cross picket lines. Yes. Or strike lines. So if, if a union strikes out of a shop, and somebody comes into work like they call an outside person comes into work they're not part of the union or they're a union union member yes they're called scabs yep right and that's the crude mean term for them um i mean that's just a person who needs a job but whatever that that person is called a scab because they're not supporting the union hence the scabby and you're being a rat because you're also not supporting the union, right? So that's the reason he's got that name.
0: That's right. And, and it is a large inflatable rat, okay?
1: <laughs> how, how tall is he?
0: Nia, do you recall? What is it? He is um,
1: 12 feet tall.
0: Feet tall.
1: He's 12 feet a 12 tall. foot tall bloody mouthed rat. If that was outside of my business, I would want that taken down immediately. Like that's drawing inordinate in negative attention to my business. That is not okay. Yes. And and a reasonable
0: person would draw the inference that the union has issues with the neutral party.
1: Exactly. Right? That the neutral party has done something bad.
0: Yes, right? Right. That's so, what I would
1: think if I drove by a 12 foot tall rat in front of your in front of your house, I would think, oh, that guy has really pissed somebody off in his family. Yes. Right. like that's, <laughs>
0: I mean, yes, no, but so what you have here is the classic constitutional rights conflict, right? On one hand, the union argues we have First Amendment rights to peaceably assemble. Right? To protest. Right. Okay. Whereas Lippert Components argues hey, we have a constitutional right to use our property, to engage in our business, okay, without, okay, this negative attention, without this harassment. Right. Right. Now, not surprisingly, the Supreme Court in a case in 1989. Okay, the uh, Florida Gulf, Ca- Gulf Coast Building and Construction Trades Council case drew in a distinction between active union protests, okay, versus merely handing out handbills, okay, and other protected expressive speech, right? And basically the court went ahead and said, okay, that-
1: Okay, so so picketing is an active thing, right? You're standing out yes. front, you're walking back and forth. You're clearly drawing attention physically and you're probably shouting things You're you're- Yes. As opposed to, I'm just handing you a piece of paper that says, this company sucks and here's why.
0: Yeah, they do business with another business, okay? Who treats their workers poorly? Okay,
1: right? and the so ladders, the Supremes have pulled those two things apart and said that's right. They the are latter, different.
0: Yeah, the latter is protected; the former is not, because okay? the
1: former is harassment. That's right. Okay.
0: So the National Labor Relations Board has taken that Supreme Court ruling, and in the case of Lipper Components, one of their administrative law judges ruled against Lipper Components. And the National Labor Relations Board, um, in a three-to-one decision, um, uh, confirmed the administrative law judge's
1: decision. Saying it's okay for you to put up a rat in front of these people because it's passive.
0: It is passive. That's right.
1: It's just standing there being creepy.
0: Yes. it's. (laughs) That's right. Okay. Okay.
1: Yeah. i mean i find it creepy some people might find it adorable but i find it creepy but okay. you, emphasized,
0: you you emphasized the correct adjective it's passive right
1: right it's just standing You're, there
0: yeah it is just standing there
1: you, you know. if it were standing there but it had a microphone inside and they had recorded messages that were that were, you know, these people are scum and blah, 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 blah. That might change that. That might change that decision.
0: Yes. Or if it was a robotic rat, 12-foot
1: rat. Oh, now that uh, is the thing of my nightmares. Thank you.
0: Okay. Okay. That went ahead and, like, you know, got in front of your face or, you know, um, one of its paws went ahead and clutched people as it walked into your business. <laughs> okay or trying to bite you
1: well the thing about picketing too is that picketing usually takes place on a sidewalk like it makes it harder to physically get into the building because that's the point of picketing the point of picketing is to make people have to walk through a phalanx of people who are grumpy at this company in order to get into the company whereas a rat's standing off to the side of the door is gross, and it's scary, but it's not preventing you from...
0: Yeah, in in, in economics terms, Nia, what you are describing is the purpose of picketing is to not only draw attention to somebody or some businesses or some government agencies' behavior that the picketers find troublesome. The idea of picketing is to, in economic terms, increase the transaction costs of those neutral parties who want to do business. Okay, I see.
1: right? Because okay. somebody has to cross that line. They have to. They have to have courage to do that. They have to really you know, want you, what's inside. It's. They may and be and shouted gonna at, and they're going to get inside, and they're going to say, "What the hell is all that about?" Okay. Oh, or pardon they my be, language.
0: They may be video, they may be, you know, recorded, okay, you know, as frequenting a business, okay, who mistreats their unions or, you know, you know, discriminates against these people or, you know, hey, I live near, nearby to uh, the, the Virginia Employment Commission office here in Richmond, right? I've actually seen a lot of unhappy people in the last few months because the VEC as a huge bake backlog of appeals, right? Right. Okay, so trying to get into that building where you have people outside who are like, you know, these people don't care about those of us who are unemployed, okay? Right. That increased the transaction costs, right? And makes you think twice about wanting to enter the building. So if That's it's a purpose- business,
1: it's going to lower yes. their, their commerce because it's going to lower, some yes. people are going to drive up and say, oh, heck no, and they're going to drive away.
0: Yeah, they're They're just not even going
1: to be interested.
0: They're going to go to another business, you know, whatever the case may be. Okay. But the larger point here, and this is what fascinates both you and I about this, is that the National Labor Relations Board has the authority to conduct a hearing and issue a decision that has the effect of a court decision, and this is what's called adjudication, okay? Administrative judicial proceeding. And notice the combination of the two words there, Nia. It's an administrative judicial, if you will, hearing indecision, okay? This isn't a court per se issuing a decision. This is an administrative body, a bureaucratic agency that has been given authority by Congress to go ahead and judge whether or not somebody has complied with or violated National Labor Relations Board regulations.
1: Can I just say, though, it is vitally important that we have these in agencies. Oh, I, because yes. the court yes. system would be so oh. clogged, we would never get anything decided by anybody because there would be so much backlog, like. Like, I know, I just, um, while, right before we, we met, I pulled up the neighbor, labor relations because I wanted to see what their most recent case is. And by the way, their most recent case was yesterday. Um, yesterday, had, they had like 10 filings. It, it's more, it may be more than that. No, it's more like 20 filings. Yesterday, can you imagine? I mean, if that's, that's one day out of the year, Right, so they're getting filings at that number. If that was in the regular court system, holy cow, Azoli. and talk about uneven management, if it was in the courts all the way across the United States at various levels, and it would be terrible.
0: You just mentioned one of the, one of the two main reasons why um, supporters advocate for agencies to have the authority to engage in adjudication. So the one reason you just mentioned, if all of these disputes went to court, okay, it would grind our federal court system to a screeching halt. Yeah. Right. Okay. The second is, is it not better to have the experts in labor law that work for the National Labor Relations Board take a first cut at these disputes before sending these disputes to very general, I mean, let's face it, federal court judges are generalists.
1: Right.
0: You know, not only do they hear constitutional disputes, but they may hear legal disputes about labor, the environment, okay, commerce, the Treasury Department. Right. Okay? Any drug state crimes.
1: agency, like, yeah. Yeah, it, drug
0: crimes, right? They're generalists, right? But adjudication within agencies, okay, is done by the experts in labor law, right? Well,
1: and you have labor law lawyers who are coming before labor law specialists Liz. Yes, to have a labor law discussion. That's like, right. You're cutting out all the people who are saying, now, could you explain to me a union again? Right. <laughs> like, like they're, I mean, judges well, know what unions are. Okay. But, 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 but think but, about, the you know, idea for this
0: podcast. Okay. We actually spent a couple minutes explaining the concept of a neutral party as it relates to the National Labor Relations
1: Act. Which you would never have to do in that situation because they all know what that is. Yeah. They all know it. Right. Right. So the okay. first thing you'd say is, Your Honor, we're a neutral party. That's the first yeah. thing you'd say. And everybody, or even if you're not, even if you're just talking to the board, you would say, ladies and gentlemen, we're a neutral party. So we,
0: And we need the definition of a neutral party in X, Y, and Z, while the rest of us would be, you know, stumbling saying, um, uh, wait a minute, can you all wait? Because I need <laughs> to go ahead and find that section of the National Labor Relations Act, which actually defines a neutral party. Okay? Right.
1: And they know it. In their sleep. Right. Yeah, they know that they know the
0: chapter and the verse. They know the regulations, okay, that have further explained what a neutral party is. The rest of us would be like, Hey, I'm gonna have to get back to you.
1: I can I can see though on the flip side where people might say that is an awful lot of authority for one group of people to have. Like, oh, they get to decide and then there's no disputing, there's no Appeal process. There's no. I mean, the appeal process for that is to then go to the regular court system and attempt.
0: Yeah. So basically, some other
1: sort of constitutional argument or something else.
0: So basically, what you have here is Lipper Components first had a hearing in front of a an administrative law judge, an ALJ. Okay.
1: Who is a trained judge? Like that is a person, right? Who is yes trained in the law? That's not just.
0: Like no, I couldn't
1: any, be an administrative judge.
0: No, uh, a, a, an administrative law judge is somebody who has developed an expertise in that specific area of the law, right? Okay. So you have administrative law judges who, for instance, work for Immigration and Customs, customs Enforcement, okay? They are immigration law experts, right?
1: We and they're eight, appointed.
0: Yes, and this is part of the controversy about Administrative law judges, right? Okay. Administrative law judges are class, or they are known as Article One judges, meaning Congress has created them and they don't work for the federal court system. They work for executive branch agencies.
1: Oh, so they might favor the agency, or they ah, might
0: and that is one of the complaints okay of bar associations is that these judges are hired by agencies to issue decisions about agency behavior and they don't have life tenure like article 3 judges they're usually employed on 8 to 10 year contracts and they can be fired without
1: cause Okay, so they they need to find in favor of the agency to keep their job is a is a potential
0: is a potential, if you will, problem. Okay. It's a potential, if you will, variable to impartiality. Okay, wait. Yeah.
1: You said something and I want to make sure that we're clear with our listeners. When you say Article one or Article Three, you are referring to the Constitution of the United States.
0: That is correct. Okay. Yep. And so yep.
1: Article 1 gives all the congressional powers, Article 2 gives all the presidential powers, and Article 3 is the afterthought. Oh, yeah, by the way, we should have a court system.
0: Federal court system, right. It. By okay. the way, I
1: say that only because it's short and not very...
0: Yeah, she says that, a listener, sarcastically, because, yeah. again, in previous <laughs> podcast episodes, we have both remarked that when you compare Article 3 to Articles 1 and 2, um, it really did look like the Constitution. The, the delegates at the Constitutional Convention were just like, yeah, we should probably have an independent judiciary, but we've spent a lot of time here in Philadelphia. <laughs> it's okay, hot. In, we want to go in, home. <laughs> yeah, in the summer. Okay. And I haven't seen my family. And it's a really long carriage ride back to Maine. Right.
1: right? <laughs> okay. So let's just jot something down and we can move on. Okay. So. <laughs> okay. So for, let's go back to this case. Lippert components
0: first had a hearing in front of an administrative law judge. The administrative law judge issued a decision, right? And at that point, the decision is not final until the board, the National Labor Relations Board, either accepts it or rejects it.
1: Oh, so that's your uh, sort of your secondary level of accountability or- That's the check and
0: balance. Okay. within the National Labor Relations Board until the board issues a final decision lipper components cannot file a lawsuit in federal court why because of a rule of justiciability known as ripeness a case is not ripe right for the federal courts to hear until the parties have exhausted all other avenues of appeal. And technically, until the National Labor Relations Board issues a final decision, okay, that's not, okay, a completed appeal process. Wow. Yes. And by the way, by the time you work through the agency Hearing an appeal process, most Americans do what?
1: I would assume they give up.
0: They give up. A very they're exhausted.
1: Small... They've either yes. their their businesses either run into the ground. The right? system
0: the system has chewed them up and spit them out, right? Okay. Um, but again, the downside, let, let's just say, for instance, Nia lipper components okay doesn't want to go through the hearing in front of an administrative law judge then we're back to the concern you you referenced a few moments ago everybody that gets an adverse if you will decision from a federal government administrative agency would just go would just run to court
1: okay right. all this would do would delay it
0: yes And then you would have executive branch agencies basically spending all of their time not actually implementing laws, but defending themselves where, Nia?
1: In the various court systems.
0: That's right, in the federal courts. So now you would have both, okay, an executive branch, but also a judicial branch problem, right? Because the executive (laughs) branch would not be implementing law, and the judicial branch would be like, Oh good lord! We got yet another National Labor Relations Board case. Okay.
1: So the National Labor Relations National Labor Relations Board's members are appointed presidential appointees, or are they?
0: The NLRB's uh, board members, okay, um, are appointed on staggered terms. So no one President theoretically can appoint all the members to the National Labor Relations Board. They are considered an independent regulatory commission. So when the National Labor Relations Board was created, okay, the thought was we need to remove politics from what the board does. Because if unions thought that board members were only appointed by, okay, business-friendly presidents, then they would have no faith in the board. Right. And businesses, okay, would have no faith in the board if, you know, union-friendly presidents appointed members to the board. Okay?
1: Okay. Okay. So they're staggered for that reason. So that you always have a mixture. Yeah, they are staggered
0: for that reason. That's right. You always have a mixture. Yes.
1: Although some presidents choose not to put people on the national labor board. Like they choose not to put them, and not just for um, this agency, but also for other agencies that have a similar system, sometimes they won't appoint board members because they don't believe in the agency, or they want to weaken the agency, or they want to weaken the.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, hey, the system, um, right? Like uh, 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 President Trump um, uh, avoided putting members on certain boards because most uh, most independent agencies cannot meet and issue final decisions if they don't have
1: a quorum. Right, which would be three out of five. That's right. So if the positions yep. are open and you don't fill yep. them, they can't meet and they can't. Yep. And they can't solve things. So I noticed one of the things that was filed yesterday. One of the uh, the um, allegation. There's always a list. Uh, I will put a link to the to the case listing so that you can just, if you're curious, go look. But it basically tells you tells you who the company who's who's putting the the dispute in, and then. It puts in the allegation. And the allegations are things like bad faith negotiating or communicating threats, right? Like it's it's that kind of thing that they are trying to settle. Did did this company say they were going to work with the union and then walk away from the table? Like, like you, don't, so. you don't get or, to do that. You know, or, if you or, say or, you're going to negotiate in good faith, then you have to actually do it.
0: Well, and also vice versa. Employers right. can file claims with the National Labor Relations Board, accusing unions of engaging in behavior that is prohibited by the law. Right, prohibited by the law. Okay, uh, which is what you know, Lipper Components did. Right, Lipper Components went ahead and said, "Hey, wait a minute here." we didn't do anything wrong and this union is engaging in okay speech activities that violates the national labor relations board's regulations okay but anyways you had an example you wanted to touch upon
1: well i just wanted to to read off and by the way i'm i'm not suggesting that any of these companies are acting in bad faith or good faith i don't know and Uh, these are all the initial filings, but I just wanted to read off um, Aramark, Albertsons, Kaiser Permanente, United Parcel Service has three, the United States Postal Service, Durham School Services, like they, it's not GT Technologies, United States Postal Service again, um, Frontier Communications, all of these Uh, Teamsters, Teamsters Local. All of these, it doesn't matter whether the firm is private or public. It doesn't matter whether it's a government agency or not a government. Like, all of those labor disputes are filed with this particular group. Sure. So that's why you get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of filings in a month is, and um, it's not always something huge like, uh, or no, that's not the way I wanna say it. The, the issue that Amazon has had with unions and union busting or, or not telling people that they're allowed to unionize. Um, each one of those cases in each one of those Amazon warehouses would come up separately. Like it doesn't yes. come up as a yes. all of the employees of you know the United States Postal Service are are bringing up this dispute it's the United States Postal Service in Hopkinsville Kentucky is this particular one that I look yes. at yeah right like and they're assigned regions there's regions for the labor board so what the judges don't it's not one set of judges, it's judges in the region in Ohio and the region in Georgia and the region in Illinois and the region in Virginia. Because they're trying to settle it as locally as they can it sounds like.
0: Well I mean even before a judge gets involved you might have a staffer for the National Labor Relations Board that will take a look at the claim and then make a recommendation as to how the board can best address the dispute without there being a National Labor Relations Board hearing. Hearings are costly. And right. Nia, you and I have talked about this, whether we talk about a court case in a federal court system, a state court system, but even cases, okay, for agencies that have the authority of conducting adjudication. Hearings are expensive, okay? So you're going to have staffers who are going to read these complaints and make a recommendation to board attorneys, okay, and higher-ups, hey, this might be the best way to arbitrate this dispute without a hearing, because once it goes into the hearing system, okay, then things tend to get adversarial, okay? You're talking about employers in unions who all of a sudden have to drop everything for the hearing, okay, you know, administrative hearings are not as, how can I put it, rigorous as federal court hearings But they have to follow a process, Nia, that's actually laid out in a law that we've discussed previously on this podcast, the Administrative Procedures Act of 1946. Okay? An agency just doesn't go ahead and say, yeah, we really don't like the United States Postal Service. So yeah, Postal Service, you violated one of our regulations. No, they got to follow a hearing process.
1: Oh, and side note, I I can tell you that looking at the process for this board there's the charge then, then then it goes either to it goes to an investigation which can either lead to a withdrawal or to an injunction and then after that there's the complaint and the answer which can lead to an injunction or it can lead to a hearing and decision and then beyond that there's dismissal or remedial order or other disposition like seriously these are the processes and then the court enforcement and review at the end so yes. that's where that's why it's exhausting Because it takes.
0: And the hope is when Congress gave executive branch agencies, by and large, starting with the New Deal, adjudication authority. The hope was, okay, again, you're talking about competing interests, Nia, right? The balancing of competing interests. The hope from Congress was on one hand, we don't want to go ahead and burden the federal court system. On the other hand, we want to maintain the rights and liberties of, in this particular case, workers and businesses, right? right? So how do we, and again, you know, there's a reason why some metaphors, okay, (laughs) exist. But you want to talk about threading, okay, a really, really tiny needle, okay? Good luck with that. Okay, good luck with that. Um, and, and by the way, um, for listeners who might be students at VCU, if you found this, in, you know, this discussion interesting or something you want to delve into, uh, in, in, into even more, okay, gratuitous self-plug, okay, take my administrative law class that I <laughs> offer every spring. Um, it's called administrative law because we talk about this, right?
1: And if you're at another institution, there's probably a class like that.
0: Yes. Okay. local to Um, you
1: that you could take. And if you're not in an educational institution, then sometimes you can take those classes at a reduced rate as a community member in order to learn. Yeah, you
0: you can audit the class. But I mean, this is the kind of thing. And again, there are trade offs, right? I mean, we've identified easily a half a dozen trade offs in this discussion. Right. Okay, of having agencies be given the authority to handle these kinds of disputes but once you go ahead and create rights and you want to regulate interactions between two rather important parts of the American economy right okay, employers post,
1: and employees please
0: you know post-civil war <laughs> as the nation's economy shifted from agrarian to industrialization okay you know You had employers and employees, okay? So how do you go ahead and protect the interests of both who are extremely important for the nation's economy, right? Extremely important. And it it, it really, I mean, post-World War II, I mean, the United States rise, okay, as a world power wasn't just that we had a whole bunch of nukes, right? Okay. And that we, we had the largest had military an
1: enormous labor econ- force and
0: yeah, we had the, the kind of economic growth, okay, that you've hardly seen in world history.
1: That na- right, that nations dream of.
0: Okay. Um, so how do you go ahead and make sure that these two important elements of that kind of economic growth, okay are getting along right they value one another their rights and interests are protected and promoted right yeah and
1: and i'm just to wrap us up i want to ask one last question do you think that sometimes these disputes are filed to push the negotiations yes yes yeah to get to get one side or the other to come back to the table and have a
0: Yeah, there is more reasoned
1: discussion, because it says in each one of these parts of this process that you can withdraw, like at any point you can withdraw and say, you know what, never mind, we've settled it. Yes, on our own.
0: Yeah, there is is a literature within administrative law um, that does talk about how um, filing a claim with a regulatory agency that has an adjudication Power or authority is seen as a negotiating tactic to force at least one of the parties in a dispute to actually take the dispute seriously, right? Okay, right. You know, um, because you know, they don't want to go to a hearing, right? They don't want a final ruling from the board. Oh, you want to avoid that? Okay, so let's sit down and talk about this, right? You know, where where is the consensus or middle ground here? All right. But oftentimes it takes the filing of a complaint to kind of sort of, hey, we're serious. This is important to us. So are you gonna sit down and actually like talk to us? Yeah. yeah.
1: Okay. It just yeah. seemed like when, when you look at the giant box that goes along the side of the flow chart that says you can withdraw at any time. And, and you read along to it and, it, and it says, you know, parties have come to an agreement and all that other kind of stuff. I was thinking, oh, that's the labor board's way of saying you don't have to keep this going if you can manage to arbitrate it among yourselves.
0: Yes, yes, yes. So
1: if Lippert had just walked out and said to the protesters, could y'all just take the rat down? Like, we will do our best to pressure Thor Industries to come to the table and talk to you. But the rat is grossing out at least one of our employ- one of our you know uh, um, well you know, users know. like you know or whatever. Then they could conceivably have worked that out. Yeah. Among themselves, it's when the person gets recalcitrant. You walk out and you say, "Hey, would you consider taking down your twelve foot rat because it's scaring everybody?" And they say, "No." Then, then you are know, like, "All right, I'm okay." I'll file something to make you take it down, and it turns out they did. They were not able to do that because it is within their right to put up the twelve-foot rat, which is just gross. But, um, but (laughs) okay. So, so they do have the, and and probably I would assume that once you get into a hearing situation, it's because all of that has failed.
0: Yeah, it's failed. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep.
1: Well, this is interesting. It's interesting to me and maybe we'll explore other agencies that do this and the kinds of disputes that they settle. Because um, I find well, it fascinating that there's a whole entire agency that's point is to settle labor dispute.
0: Or, or about how about this? Uh, another form of adjudication and you and I have talked about this uh, off recording. Um, how about those uh, agencies that uh, use administrative hearings for the granting of licenses, right? So, you know what might what might be a really good follow up episode, Nia, is for us to explore, for instance, the FCC, ah, right? the Federal Communications Commission, right, right. Uh, which has the uh, legal authority to decide who can own and operate radio and television stations in the United States.
1: Okay, well, let's do it then.
0: All right. Sounds good.
1: Cool. Thank you so much, Augie. I appreciate it. Thank you, Neem. Yep.
0: You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the workshop for technical assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu slash discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.